This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Mehdi Sangvaji. I'm a host with the New Books Network. And today I'm very pleased, excited, and honored to have Professor Critchley here. And he um, doesn't need really introduction for the people in the know, but here we go. Professor Critchley is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research, uh, which I recently found out uh, um, among its founders were John Dewey and Thorsten Duplin. Yeah which is amazing. And uh, Professor Christie has written a lot on very diverse issues, all cool, all good. And um, he has written on uh, the ethics of deconstruction, um, Derrida and Levinas, uh, very little, almost nothing, death philosophy literature. He has written a book uh, specifically on the death of philosophers and how they died. Some of them hilarious, hilariously tragic comic. Um, ethics, politics, subjectivity, ethics and Derrida, Levinas, and uh, contemporary French thought, continental philosophy, a very short intro- introduction, uh, continental philosophy, a very long introduction, actually, also on humor, the name speaks for itself, uh, things merely are, philosophy in the poetry of Wallace Stevens, uh, infinitely demanding, uh, the book on the, the book of dead philosophers on Heidegger's being in time, how to stop living and start worrying, one of his most favorite books of all time. Uh, and the book we are going to talk about today, The Faith of the Faithless Experiments in Political Theology. It came out in 2012 from Verso, and the, by the mercy of God, nobody decided to do a podcast on until I, received, I, I came along. <laughs> so um, Professor hey. Christie, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, Professor, um, you well, call me Simon. Absolutely, Simon. You have uh, introduced yourself as one time at least as half that obsessional, inhibited, self-hating Englishman who hates England. And I'm sure not only is true, but the the last part, self-hating, uh, the, the last part, uh, hating England, that comes in handy. There's a um, there's a um, quote from Rousseau. Uh, we may get to uh, quote him uh, extensively, probably. Um, also talking about uh, how the English are wrong to uh, trust the parliamentary uh, parliamentarian way of looking at. Um, politics. Um, My first kind of marginal question is, how does you being an Englishman uh, who writes English um, um, help the book? 
Help the book. Yeah. Don't know. Uh, my hatred of England has been consistent throughout my life. So <laughs> it informs it informs this book as it does the the you know the flip side of love. So it you know the hatred conceals a if you like a sentimental attachment to the place I'm from, but enormous disappointment with it. So. Uh, I don't think that whether this book is particularly informed by that, I don't really know. No, not really. No, there are more. There are more, more, more English loathing books than, than this one. But <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't see it. I mean, I, you know, I, I have an awful lot to say about this, but the, um, I, um, you know, I, everybody happens to come from a place um I see no particular reason to celebrate that fact. Exactly. Uh, whoever it may be. And um, that's just a fact about me. So I'm from England. And uh, the nice thing about being from England is you can't really feel good about it unless you're, <laughs> or, uh, you know, all, all malevolent. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a good nationality to have because you can't, you know, we, we fucked everybody over at one point or another. So, yeah. So I have a very ambiguous relationship too. And it's partly informed by my, my family, uh, all from Liverpool. And Liverpool has always seen itself as a city that is in England, but not of England. So that, um, a poor city, yeah, right. So that, that that's very important to some kind of you know, background sense of where I'm from. And to that, in, in the, with that in mind, that's sort of why I've, you know, New York is, is home for me. And it's a, it's a convenient home because it's, um, it's also a port city and a city that's not a capital city, but a city of capital, a city of commerce uh, and culture and, um, and money. Yeah. And that more that makes you know there, there's something more honest about that than uh, living in a living in a, a metropolitan capital city. Exactly. Uh, so um, the subtitle of your, uh, this book is uh, "Experiments in Political Theology." In it, you go yeah. through many different political experiments and try to situate them in their own time, as well as how they can help us or what they could mean to us. Um, you complement them, you criticize them, you put some of them together, you find uh, familial kinship between them. Um, at some point, was there a, like a, a, a big chunk of what you liked in history of uh, political philosophy that you had to put aside to like close the book, or is it is it almost all of the? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I yeah, I, I think I. Um, I mean, uh, I think maybe I invested too much time and love in in Rousseau. Uh, although I, I'm fascinated by Rousseau, and there's lots of things that I don't really take, you know, I don't really deal with. I mean, I could have spent a lot more time thinking about Hobbes, which, in a sense, yeah. feels, in a sense, more relevant because of the the way in which we've 
um, you know, our, our kind of new love affair with the state and uh, they, as a kind of person having a personality and uh, the various, I mean, what's happened in politics in the last the last years, particularly with COVID, is a kind of reinforcement of uh, state sovereignty, yeah. which is uh, where where some like Hobbes comes in. But you know, so yeah, could it be more on that? And um, um, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, it's it just it happened the way it happened. I can tell you how it happened if you like to sort of story of the the, the genesis of the book, or at least the way it was written. Okay, so can we do it in, the, in, in a form of question? Because I had this question in mind uh, to ask you if, um, like, um, so w would you be comfortable calling yourself an anarchist, as in a noun form? Uh, yes, yeah. Awesome. Um, yes, I, I would. I mean, you know, with as long as that's understood as a, as a kind of, I, I mean, I'm interested in in kind of weak and hopeless forms of anarchism, really. Yeah, I know. Um, up in, you know, black outfits and, you know, you know, taking. Not really. I'm more interested in people digging in their gardens and uh, working things out together, and uh, and the kind of social practices which make that possible. You know, traditions of mutual aid. Which don't really the, the the interesting yeah so so yeah I'm happy to uh, happy to think of myself as having an attachment to the anarchist tradition yeah right so then the question uh, I had was like was there an aha moment was there a Damascene moment for you uh, um, that you said okay I, I think I'm an anarchist so was there like a bruised thing like was there always in you or just came out suddenly um, I think it emerged over time in many ways the prehistory of the the prehistory of the of the book and the prehistory of you know what happened what I was doing before the book was the you know an interest in not an interest a, 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 a sense of what was wrong politically and um, and that for me meant working within a, a conventional uh, party structure so I worked for many years in a very kind of ordinary low-level way in the Labour Party in um, in Britain, in, in my in my local constituency, and um, the 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 failure of that, or the way in which you know twenty years of defeat uh, of the Labour Party led to victory in the form of Tony Blair, Blair, yeah, and the and dealing with that, and then and then a sort of a, a resurgence of interest in more radical forms of politics in the in the late 90s, which was very much linked to where I was in um, uh, the University of Essex at the time and living in England. And, and books like Hart and Negri's Empire you know, had a, a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion around books like that. And there was a kind of radical turn then, which was focused around you know, movements against globalization. Um, people were uh, obsessed with uh, the Zapatistas, um, with what was happening elsewhere, you know, in, in Iran, in, in all over the place. So these kind of this sense of which there were low-level popular movements and forms of association that became possible and were being, you know, and we were thinking that 
through in in the 2000s and that the book sort of comes out of that um of that sequence which in a way reaches a kind of high high water mark with the occupy movement in um 2009 and um and i was you know i was very much um not very much involved with that that sounds too self-aggrandizing and i was trying to you know trying to help insofar as i could and um and then um you know and then i think an increasing disaffection with with politics which is common to i think a lot of people over the last you know 10 10 12 years it's um so i think it's um it's a complicated question. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so starting with Russo, um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned something which is, um, to me, sounded very original, um, and a lot of uh, Rousseauists um, focus on that. That's the idea of decalage, like the displacement, the uh, moments of tensions, you say ambiguity or seeming contradiction. And you, you, you maneuver on that. Uh, can you go into a little details of what it is and why is it, why it is important? It's, yeah, it, it's the, um, it's really following up from a, a brilliant essay by Althusser on, a, on Rousseau's social contract, which um, I hadn't really read until the early 2000s. I had it, but I'd not really read it. And I was becoming... You know, I've always been fascinated with with Rousseau, just at the level of, you know, the texts and 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 um, and what they're doing and the kind of contradictions that are involved in those texts. And and uh, uh, Althusser puts his finger on a kind of series of displacements, slippages in in Rousseau's in Rousseau's texts, and uh, um, and so I became fascinated with that and began to in fact I only taught this once I was teaching Rousseau I think in 2006 at the new school and um and then um you know I think that Rousseau is <laughs> a much more important figure politically than than Marx say politically in terms of how we think about politics and uh, what it means to be involved in what, what politics actually involves and the institutions of a, of a political regime and um, and yeah so that was you know and it, it goes back further than that I mean but but Rousseau I find you know in terms of the the self-consciousness of what Rousseau is doing, the extraordinary intelligence and self-awareness that he's doing something which at the same level is, is preposterous and is involved in all sorts of contradictions of which he is completely aware and yeah. you, you follow that. And the, and the contradiction that I'm kind of following through in, in, um, in the book is the contradiction between politics and, and religion, the, the idea of politics that Rousseau wants to defend is an idea of association or popular sovereignty, which is the way in which a people declares itself into existence, if you like, and that requires no exterior uh, support, religious, metaphysical support, and yet at the same time, he engages in this, um, this discourse on what he calls 
civil religion. And this began, got me thinking about the relationship between politics and religion in, in Rousseau and then more generally in, in the world. And so that was, uh, that was kind of what got me, got me started, I think, in, yeah. in the well, You also call him the, like the most self-aware of uh, his own fiction. Which is amazing. Like he he knows the fiction he's weaving, and uh, still he believes in it. Yeah, or still he 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 does it. Yeah, he's um yeah he's he's to that extent he's. <coughs> I think Rousseau and Nietzsche are the the two most, if you like, self conscious artifacts of their own enterprise. They they know exactly what they're doing, and um, there's an extraordinary reflexivity in what Rousseau's up to, which comes out in a particularly particularly extreme way in his autobiographies, where Rousseau is kind of at war with himself. Um, Rousseau, judge of Jean-Jacques, you know, this this second autobiography where he so the the idea of I think you know in many ways being a not a philosopher that's a bit too much being a, a thinker is you know is always to be a a war with yourself. And so if you're looking for progenesis of that, then Rousseau is is very good to spend company, very good yeah. company to spend time in. And uh, we can learn a lot. Excellent. And um, one of the things you really like him is the catechism of the citizen. Um, by the way, I found something. Um, uh, you also um, uh, mentioned Sergei Nechayev. And... Um, yeah. um, but uh, I, I researched him and a little bit, and uh, he has a catechism of a revolutionist. Um, and in it, um, uh, I, I want to read just, just the first sentence of his catechism of the, the, the revolutionist. He says, uh, number one, the revolutionist is a person doomed. I found out that doomed is, uh, in uh, his original um, Russian was Obrichengi. I'm looking forward to all the Russian speaking people telling me that I butchered the, uh, the word. Um, you know, and it, apparently in order usage, um, this, this Russian word means uh, consecrated also. So doomed and consecrated. I found it fascinating that even, even uh, somebody as, as ascetic as him knew that um, they could go together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, that's interesting. A kind of a doom, which is a sacralization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, he came to a rather unpleasant end. And there's there's stories about Nechayev about whether whether he even existed and whether he oh really oh yeah and whether he, he was um, whether whether the that that text the Catechism of the Revolutionary is um, is intended. Sincerely, or as a kind of parody, there's been there's some debate about that, but yep. it, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating text, and also I think a deeply, um, it's it's instructive in terms of warning us about the extremities of, if you like, a political speech. Right? There's a you know, Nechayev as there's a kind of you can see the kind of spirit of Nechayev in you know, the kind of enthusiastic excitement of various, you know, political figures, whether they're on the right or the left. I think that should give us some pause. It should yeah. give us some... Uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting yeah. as well, very short. Very short, yeah. Oh. 
But Kunin makes fun of him, right? Like he says, the, you you sound like a like a Chechen uh, gorilla <laughs> right now. Makes fun of him after he, he writes um, the catechism, apparently. Yeah, well, I think it, I think that's also I think worth thinking about that the that there's something about the um, if you like the the extremity of political speech, you know, the uh, which has been accelerated and exacerbated by um, the way in which we engage in these abstract forms of in, uh, abstract forms of activism on online yeah. which of course just up and people say more and more excessive things oh, yeah. and um, it's uh, it's to that extent you know we need to cool down a bit <laughs> and, yeah, no, and yeah, you, definitely you look at what's happening rather than make judgments about it. I think the, so I think Nechayev is a good early, early instructive lesson in, in what to, you know, what to avoid in forms of excessive political speech. Yeah. In, in um, Jules uh, the, the movie, there's a, there's a story that um, uh, a, a lady starts writing to a soldier, like randomly does, they don't know each other, and and little by little they they they, they fell in love, they fall in love, and it gets um, like um, um, harder uh, for them to stay away from each other, and it gets like a burning love in both of them. They have never met, <laughs> and and the love between them is getting worse and worse. Like the 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 burning uh, part of the love, which is amazing, uh, like. Uh, the same thing with the online uh, activism that you're saying, like the, the yeah, and also yeah. with the uh, Julie Jim is that is is that Godard or is that Truffaut? No, no, is Truffaut, that... Truffaut. Truffaut. Okay, well Truffaut, yeah, but the um, yeah, I mean the 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 film Both. which really two people yeah. fell fall in love with Jean Moreau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. okay. go uh, on. Uh, so yeah. Um, uh, there's one thing that um, you have said other, in other places and uh, obviously it's very important to you and Russo says it also. Um, mm -hmm. Russo sees or acknowledges the motivational inadequacy of a purely philosophical account of politics and offers the picture yeah. of a political religion. So uh, from philosophy, from the, uh, the, um, the theory to, actually com to actual commitment. See, um, that is that part of what he calls religion? Because it's not actually religion, right? Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's, um, I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm broadly against political philosophy, right? In the sense in which um, I don't really know what a lot of political philosophy really does or thinks it's doing. And um, I, the approach I take in the faith of the faithless is... Um, it's, uh, it's it's genealogical. It's historical. Yeah, uh, historical work is is hugely important. Not necessarily my own, but other people's. I think that there's a we also require a um, a, a formalism, a certain formal understanding of of um, of the nature of political institutions. Rousseau gives us a very uh, compelling picture of that in the social contract, and then we need. Uh, we need two more things. We need uh, we need a, an account of uh, of practices, an account of customs, <clears throat> what Rousseau calls uh, les mœurs, you know, mores, 
and we need uh, we need some theory of persuasion. We need rhetoric uh, in order to persuade people of um, why they should adopt a certain political view. So those four elements of genealogy, formalism, um, customs, and um, and persuasion, I think, are what takes the place of political philosophy. Um, as it's usually understood. And I, I stand by that. And I think Rousseau is very good, is, is very instructive in that regard. And I think the, the, the key thing for Rousseau, for me, maybe the, the key thing in his work is that you, don't, you can't get anywhere in politics without an account of, uh, of habits, uh, of, of limits, of morals, of, um, of practices, of actual things that people actually do yeah. Um, in social life, and you have to uh, the task of a uh, a theorist, if you like, or a task of a a thinker is not to eradicate those practices in the name of some you know revolutionary transformation, but to take those practices, observe them, understand them with the with the kind of detail of a, of an anthropologist, and then to try and see if they can be molded into something else um so a, re a religion in that sense will be just you could say would be the name for the that that total structure yeah. you know um religion would be that which would uh persuade people to act in a certain way would give them a kind of a deep motivational commitment so i, I begin you know in not i i assume in this book but it's, it's argued more clearly in Infinitely Demanding, which is the book that leads this book, that, you know, the problem, we, the problem that we face is a motivational deficit in Western liberal democracy. And how do we face that? And that requires a, an understanding, a, a theory of ethics. And uh, so that's kind of where I begin from. Yeah. Excellent. Um... So you also say to understand politics, you have to uh, begin from sacred violence. So um, uh, Rousseau talks about the, the citizenship, the politics, and the religion, but uh, we also have to talk about the violence because that's that's the three main topics you're covering, right? So sacred sacred violence. Um, um, you uh, name some of these. Um, modern um, ideas in politics and uh, you name them in the book in relation to sacred violence i'm just going to name them if you want to uh me the page and i can find it I follow you. um sorry uh, the, the part about uh, <laughs> sorry i have to find and uh, then uh, write the number of the page but can i read the the uh, if I read the part, you, you probably remember what I'm talking about. Uh, no. you, you talk about uh, Zionism, Islamism or Jihadism, military neoliberalism, and social democratic conversion. You, mm. you obviously have um, um, a lot to say about the sacralization of um, all, all uh, political ideas, uh, but especially uh, violence, right? So... Uh, other, in other places, you also make this, this distinction between um, what you call passive nihilism and um, active nihilism. I think it, uh, they're in the same 
vein, um, I suppose that's also helped me a lot, actually, with uh, understanding violence because I'm working on political violence in, in my uh, PhD thesis. So, um, okay. so yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you like, uh, you can uh, talk about a little bit about uh, passive versus uh, active nihilism. Okay, well, that, 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 that's easy. I mean, that's, um, I mean, that distinction I kind of borrow from Nietzsche um, in the notes to the um, will to power. And um, he talks about, um, well, you could be, I mean, you could be a, you could be a theologian, you could believe in, in God and uh, that God is present in kings and queens. You could, you could believe that. Um, you could um that the situation that Nietzsche describes is one where he thinks that the process of enlightenment has led to a dissolution of values and that dissolution of values uh produces a kind of shock or an effect um which is the which is the shock of of nihilism the the uncanniest he calls it in Wilson Power. And uh, so Nietzsche isn't endorsing nihilism. He's describing it as a pathology of, um, of the modern world, that yeah. the modern world is dominated in nihilism. And to affirm, to, to, say, to say that all is nothing, all is lost, is the, is the nihilist position. And he associates that philosophically with the, the work of Schopenhauer, uh, with whom he had complicated relationships but <laughs> oh, so 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 the difference between active and passive nihilism is that the if we begin from the idea that there is there's nihilism we're living in a nihilistic world then um one response to that is passive that we just say well everything is nothing um we'll just turn ourselves into a little island in, in this sea of troubles in this kind of uh sterile promontory as hamlet would say of the world and um, we engage in you know practices of self of pleasure of self-improvement you know and i've got this whole understanding of you know kind of new age western new buddhism. age practices yeah western buddhism as a kind of passive nihilism which doesn't make any kind of excessive demands and i think it's a misunderstanding of religion but that's that's by the by an active nihilism which is that if everything is nothing then we need to tear it down we need to destroy it and that's the kind of um nichayev position or in, in some, yeah and i think they're both wrong <laughs> so uh so uh there's, there's that so i think that the passive nihilism is a, is a very good diagnostic tool it makes a lot of sense it's very attractive you know, um, everything is falling to pieces. The world is the world is at war, and I can just focus on myself and yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what makes me and uh, make myself into a little island of of bliss. And active nihilism is the attempt to tear that that down. And I think the I mean, Nietzsche's Nietzsche's. Uh, uh, what would you call it? Hypothesis or idea is that um, you know there could be a, a revaluation of values, or um, which, which would be an overcoming of nihilism, and it's and that would involve something like eternal return, 
but it's never really spelled out in completely full terms in Nietzsche's work. It remains suggested. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. One of the problems I have with the layman uh, understanding of Nietzsche is that uh, he said God is dead. I said, no, he said we killed God. Now what? We should think of something else now. But um, yeah. everybody thinks about the first part, which is God's dead. Um, yes. Yeah. It's, which is just basic Christianity. God is dead. God died last Friday. You know, it was Good Fridays. <laughs> good Friday. Uh, what do we do now? So, but the, for Nietzsche, it's it's uh, it's. Um, I mean, Nietzsche is. Um, you know, it, it's a, it, he's a hyper moralist. You know, he's he's he he detests morality, um, Christian morality, but what he wants in its place is an even more kind of intense moral position a kind of af- affirmative um notion of valuation that's what which will be based upon ideas of power and so on and so forth so yeah which you oh, oh, sacred violence um, so you go first Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, the, you you actually say uh, even that was precariously um, the, mentioned by Rousseau. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was uh, aware aware of that problem, and um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, for Rousseau, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, the book is. How would I put this? I, the stuff about sacred violence is really the way in which. Uh, I mean, you know, this this is written in the in the early two thousands, but it's still sadly true. Is yeah. the way in which um, politics has become increasingly linked to forms of metaphysics, forms of um, uh, you know quite traditional metaphysics, and where uh, citizens or participants are kind of cosmic warriors who are then justified in. Um, in acts of, of violence, of, of war, yeah. and that these are kind of, these have a, a quality of, of sacredness. So, like the examples I listed are, are different ones that we could talk about. What I think that that reveals is um, uh, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm against, I'm deeply suspicious of sacred ideas of violence, but I think it's, um, it, it reveals the, um, for me, the, uh, the fictional force which is at the basis of uh, political organization, political institutions. And we need to uh, understand that and then think about what to do with that fictional force. We live to live in a political world as we do, as we have to, is to live in a world of fictions, things which were made, uh, what Hobbes calls the the artificial man, right? The Leviathan. Leviathan, That's a fiction. There's something we do, and uh, we have to understand that historically in terms of its relationship to practices, morality, and if we want to change it, we have to think about how that might be changed in very concrete terms. Excellent.
So let's get to um, a little more sunny side of the book. Um, millenarism, the movement of the free spirit. I love that part. That was my most my favorite part of the book. Um, Van Egan comes in. Um, uh, situationism comes in. That's um, So what's your interest in... Um, so... Uh, mystical anarchism. Now, this this began in a uh, an interesting way. In many ways, the, the book is. I mean, it's experiments in political theology, um, but the, the the four pieces in many ways are are quite distinct. They're quite separate. They could have been, you know, four small books. I mean, the book on. Um, I mean, the the Russo part came out as a book in on its own in German, which I was. I was quite pleased with it. It looks quite good as a little book on Rousseau. Mystical anarchism, uh, I began to get interested in um, the relationship between politics and, and sin, really, and the idea that, um, you know, whether you're... Um, and, and, and kicking off from people like, like Carl Schmitt, that uh, the difference between, say authoritarians in politics and uh, anarchists is turns on uh, their conception of of human nature and whether you think human beings are wicked or you think the human beings are decent and good and if you think they're wicked you end up as an authoritarian if you think they're good you can end up as some kind of anarchist and then um so i was thinking about that in relationship to um uh, Schmidt, and then I began to someone I've, I've really enjoyed reading over the years is John Gray, someone yeah. who's really not known and not known in any any kind of interesting way in in, in North America. And um, his book Straw Dogs is an incredibly powerful uh, critique of uh, of liberalism, um, and he you know he comes back to an idea of human beings as defective, as sinful, as, as flawed, as um, what he calls homo rapiens, rapacious animals. And then uh, I, I, met, I met John Gray at a certain point in maybe 2007 and uh, talked with him. And then How's I was already go? reading it. Oh? How did that go? I was pretty good, actually. He had all sorts of interests in... We, we did the same kind of poetry, and uh, he was very interested in Wallace Stevens, and I'd written a book on Wallace Stevens, so we, we had a lot to talk about. It was good. But he was, he, he was very close to and influenced by this man, Norman Cohn, who wrote this really definitive book called Pursuit of the Millennium yeah. um, in the late 50s and then revised in the late 60s. And really, this is an account of how there is this... Um, there is this... Um, there is this phenomenon of what he calls mystical anarchism, which he, he traces to the Middle Ages. And uh, this idea that we can live in a kind of sinless union with others, in a kind of free brotherhood or sisterhood, and, um, and there'll be no power relations and uh, there'll be consensus and everything will be fine. And uh, for my Norman Cohen, this is the... This is the this is the most terrible kind of delusion in in politics, um, and so if, uh, he traces a story that goes from um, from um, 
the, the, the heresy of the free spirit or the doctrine of the free spirit, the movement of the free spirit movement. in the 13th century in corners of Northern Europe in particular, through to uh, 60s radicalism, through the idea that we can just get rid of um, morality and we can live in a kind of sinless communism. Um, and he, he, so he, he, and that's the story he tells. And this got me interested in, in the phenomenon of mysticism, which, which has had very significant implications in the last, the last 10 years for me. So I, uh, I've just finished a, uh, a book on, on mysticism, which um, is, it's, it's, it's in the finishing stages. It, it's all written, fiddling with it. But, um, so I, it began with this kind of critique of mystical anarchism, and then I just began to really rethink that. And, so, and then, then I, I remember doing this in, um, this, was, this was a strange moment. I, the, the, the core of the mystical anarchism chapter, I, I wrote very quickly without uh, teaching any of the material. Um, uh, one December, um, must be around 2000, maybe 2008, and uh, 2007, maybe. And then I went to um, Toronto. I remember going to Toronto. And it was a very, very cold January. And I presented this material in this kind of art space. with a, And the crowd really, they really got into it. And I thought, oh, God, there's, there's something here. This is, you know, people get really excited inside of mystical anarchism. So I then began to think more about that. And um, and then you know, at the end of that chapter, I used this idea of mystical anarchism as a way of thinking about what what was going on in 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 the art world and what's called relational aesthetics on the one hand, and then with uh, and then with movements like the um, invisible committee and forms um, forms of uh, forms of anarchism anarchist organisation that were happening particularly in France but also elsewhere in the early two thousands and I see the same mystical anarchist temptation in recurring in different forms. It's 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 a very interesting phenomenon. And you call them uh, some of them like uh, the Invisible Committee um, and stuff. You call it mannerist situationism, right? Yeah, yeah, mannerist in the sense in which. I think you know mannerism is interesting in the sense in which by mannerism here I mean in terms of say the history of art the way that uh, someone like Caravaggio stands to um, Michelangelo or to, to Raphael in the sense in which in, in in Caravaggio you've got the same images the same say biblical images. Um, but they're bloodier, they're more violent, um, they're more extreme, and they're more distant from the actual religious practices. So it's it's something as 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 a possibility, as it were, recedes um, recedes in distance from us as as a lived possibility. The the reenactment of it becomes more and more violent and more and more extreme. And so I think so mannerism I see as a um, so the invisible committee are a kind of mannerist situationist group. They want they want to be like the situationists, but the social reality of that in you know France 15 years ago allowed you know allowed a more minimal form of expression. 
to that and that that then led, led them to kind of re really exaggerate uh, the rhetoric becomes more inflated and i see that a lot with um contemporary the contemporary revival of, uh, of of marxism the the you know marxism becomes more manneristic more extreme and exaggerated and violent in its rhetoric as it recedes as an actual possibility mm -hmm. uh, lived politics so i think that's a real problem that we just end up ventilating these um uh, these positions and uh i think it's also a whole the whole set of phenomena linked to that on, on the right you know that we could think about you know uh those endless stories about you know race war that's coming to the the civil war the race war that's coming and it's going to be like book of revelation it's going to be you know it's going to be going to be war and bloodshed and then the pure will survive and the impure will be and that that rhetoric kind of infects left and right it seems to me and it's um it has to be understood and diagnosed um but i think it's uh it's a problem let's just say and part of it, um, I just want to mention very fast, uh, you, um, you lovingly talk about um, Marguerite Poet and um, reading it, I was, I, was thinking, I was thinking, oh my God, this is, this is Mansour Al-Lodge. Actually, Al-Lodge lived like 300 years before that, but like to hack and constant hacking and healing yourself so that you're emptying yourself so that God, you become God. I mean, one of the reasons they, they killed him, uh, uh, um, Mansour Al-Lodge, so badly was he kept saying, I'm God, and I'll have in, in, in yeah. Arabic, yeah. I'm very interested in that, 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 that tradition, that, you know, that tradition yeah. as it appears in, you know, uh, early Islamic mysticism, in um, Christian mysticism, in Jewish mysticism, in all sorts, of, a sort of a sense of, uh, of, of self-deification. Yeah. And that's, uh, that has led, you know, the, the mysticism book that I just finished is really kind of where that goes. Uh, I've been really trying to think, think those questions through. But I take it seriously. I mean, I think the, there are ways in which the, the, the attempt to become God, become divine, is, is, is compelling insofar as what you're trying to leave behind is an idea of, of self, a kind of a decreation of the self or an, an undoing of the self in order to be incorporated into something other than yourself, something larger. So I think the, um, I mean, self-defecation is, is very easy to criticize. It's more interesting to kind of understand it. And it's a, it's a rich and deep and interesting tradition. Very quickly, do you see it an antidote to uh, Western Buddhism? Well, it could be if it was taken, I mean, I, I like my religion like I like my my yogurt, kind of thick and creamy, and uh, my coffee, which is heavily caffeinated, and so I think that the um, the problem with Western Buddhism um, isn't a problem with Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism is its own really complex tradition, set of traditions that originates as a kind of reformation movement uh, against uh, forms of Hinduism, and it, you know the texts are are fascinating. And um, but the way in which that is adopted um, in 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 the West, I think it you know it makes me extremely suspicious because it seems to allow for a form of 
uh, yeah, decaffeinated religion in the name of spirit, in the guise of spirituality. I mean, largely I'm, I'm against spirituality talk and I'm very much in favor of religion talk because religion is thick and creamy and difficult and it's different in different places. I mean, there are all these uh, uh, similarities between religious traditions, but there are these huge differences. It's the differences that are as important. So I think the, the Western Buddhist position is it's kind of to take all of the difficult <laughs> metaphysical stuff out of religion and just turn it into some kind of undemanding, oh. vague spirituality, which is actually usually just selfish, in my view. You call, you, you, you call it the Bible according to me, right? <laughs> it's yeah. just a fantastic yeah. title. Yeah, I, and uh, I was going to write a book uh, called against Buddhism at a certain point, but it never happened. It, it didn't really have. Uh, it, it didn't. It didn't work. But it was a nice idea. Would have been nice. Uh, <laughs> I don't have that much against Buddhism. That's the thing. But I'm against the kind of. I'm against the the way in which, um, if you like, the individualization of religious practice in places like the United States. The emphasis upon forms of uh, spirituality, moral betterment, but only in this atomized way, and how that actually really is is a mask for for, for selfishness and uh, a complete absence of forgiveness and mercy when it comes to others. If there's one thing that I, if there's one thing that I really take from um, the uh, the Abrahamic faiths. Um, it, it's mercy, forgiveness, um, and human beings screw up. That, that's for sure. In which case, they if they if they repent of their sins, they're forgiven. And that's uh, that's the striking thing for me, you know, about the uh, the New Testament. Regardless of everything else, that people will come up to Christ and uh, ask for various. You know things or ask, I've heard that you do these great things you bring back the dead you turn water into wine and he will say well do you repent of your sins and say yes and if that's sincere then you are forgiven and you give everything away and you live a Christian life that's uh, and of course that's not what people want to hear they want their sins forgiven without changing anything <laughs> yeah. <laughs> terrible yeah yeah, uh, which brings us to the second most important uh, historical uh, figure in your book, I suppose. Um, that's uh, the dude uh, formerly known as Saul, uh, oh, yeah. a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, under the law blameless. Mm -hmm. He's an inquisitor who uh, was whacking these new, uh, new fanatics of the Christianity. He decides to go to Damascus, of all places, and then on, on the way, he sees an apparition who is not Hamlet's dad, by the way, but um, yeah. so he, he sees an apparition says, uh, who are you? And says, well, dude, what, what are you whacking my people for? I'm, I'm Jesus Christ. And so, oh my God, you're real. So he changes. He changes yeah. and he becomes the one of the most, he founds one of the most radical churches in, in the history of Christianity, I suppose. Why is he so important to Heidegger, uh, Badio, um, uh, Agamben, you? <laughs> I'm guessing Zizek because he, he's, uh, he, started, he's, he writes about everybody. So um, why? Um, for me, it's, um, 
I think probably for two reasons that the intrinsic interest in, in Paul's letters that as, as the founding documents of Christianity, which they are the oldest documents of Christianity, which precede the Gospels. Um, and the, um, the strangeness of, of what he says, you know, um, that, you know, you should, how should you act in the world? You should act um, in the world as if it were not, you know, as if it were not in order to orientate yourself, direct yourself to, um, to the world which is to come, which is also not. There's a kind of, there's a kind of um, double nihilism in Paul, which is uh, really just figuring that out, the radicality of that and um, its social implications. For example, Paul has no interest in the family and in society. You know, if you're, if you're married, well, fine. But if you're thinking of getting married, don't get married. Uh, remain in the condition in which you were called, he says in Romans. Remain in the condition in which you were called and wait. So this, this, this disposition, of the, this messianic disposition of, of waiting. Um, and then the second reason is that, um, you know, I've had a long-standing interest in, in Heidegger, and I'm sort of a sort of a Heideggerian. Um, um, and when I read um, Heidegger's lectures on Paul, then a kind of um, you know the at a moment of a sort of a Damascus moment, thinking, oh yeah, of course, the whole structure of Heidegger's thinking in 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 being in time is is a is a redescription of, of, uh, of Paul's, Paul's letters. And it just makes much more powerful sense. And also you begin to see Heidegger as a kind of messianic, uh, messianic thinker um, in ways that are both dangerous and compelling. So that, that's the second reason. So I used Paul to kind of rethink Heidegger's entire early work uh, in ways which I think are really more compelling than the ways in which they normally, the ways in which Heidegger is normally understood. So, yeah, and um, that would be a kind of partial answer. And Paul is just, you know, Paul is just fascinating. And um, here you've got an idea of religion as really small-scale churches, a kind of set of anarchist communes, sprinkled across the Roman Empire, which are at war with that empire. And um, so Paul is, you know, if you want to think about politics and activism, then you can do no better than read St. Paul, it seems to me. Yeah, God as an anarchist, right? God is, the, yeah, God is a kind of anarchist. That's, yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I would have, I have like, um, to any more questions, but I would have to, I would have to yeah. let you go. Just one last one, if uh, possible. Um, the 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 gist of the book: non-violent violent, non-violent uh, violence, and that's very important to you. So, yeah. if you go um, ahead and tell us what it is and how to achieve it, please. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's um, a little bit of background on this that the um, the um, in infinitely demanding, I, I worked out 
I think, I mean, to, to my satisfaction, to, you know, a theory of ethics and a theory of how um, ethics is orientated around what I call an infinite demand, an infinite demand which um, a subject accepts, takes into themselves and then forms themselves as, a, uh, as an ethical subject. And I try and describe that in, in detail. And I was fairly, still fairly happy with that. And then I tried to link that to a whole theory of politics in infinitely demanding, which was, um, is fine. There's some good stuff in there. There's an interesting reading of Marx, I think, in infinitely demanding. And, um, and then I end up with this uh, embracing a position of nonviolence, generalized nonviolence. And then Really what happened was uh, talking with um, friends in, in New York and uh, some, some students who were, who were long gone, and, but very interesting generation of students were sort of taking me to task on this and saying, well, you know, uh, uh, a generalized ethic and politics of nonviolence is, is pointless because uh, we live in a violent world. So, um, you know, as, as I think Ray, Raymond Williams said, said uh, it's, it's a great phrase where he says uh, to say peace when there is no peace is to say nothing to say peace when there is no peace is to say nothing so um, an affirmation of nonviolence is kind of empty so can there be a relationship between a kind of a general ethic of nonviolence yeah. and politics which can be strategically violent and how would you think that out and that's what I try and do in, in the last chapter uh, against, um, against, on the one hand, you know, forms of simple pacifism and on the, and on, on the other hand, against uh, forms of discourse which, which celebrate violence in this kind of uh, manneristic way. And that's the way I'd see someone like Zizek is kind of, you know, yeah, violence is cool. Let's smash things up. So, but is there a way? Is there a way of um, of engaging in, um, you know, if you like, the good violence that's against violence? Is there is there a way of thinking about a formal war that would be against war? And I, I followed that through by by developing a, a a much more anarchistic reading of of Benjamin's critique of violence, and then. And then looking at the strange relationship between nonviolence and violence in, in Levinas's work. And um, I think the, the position that leads to is, is, is on the one hand, there is an ethical commandment to nonviolence, to, uh, to peace. And, but that doesn't exclude, the it doesn't exclude the possibility that there could be a necessity for certain acts of violence at certain times. Those acts of violence can't be celebrated or justified. They just might become necessary at certain historical junctures. And as um, I was just trying to make a, make a case for thinking about the relationship, relationship between nonviolence and violence in, in those terms. And that's what I was trying to do at the end of the book, yeah, uh, whether I was successful. But it's... Uh, it becomes a question, what do I say? Let's see. It's, um, you know, it's, it's how we think together. Um, it's how we think together this, this infinitely demanding conception of, of ethics with um, 
the necessity to be involved in strategic acts which might be violent at certain junctures and not to be and so not to use non-violence as a kind of blanket position this is always this happens with this always happens with with protests so there'll be an, a non-violent protest will begin in, in in tehran or in 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 um in kiev or whatever it might be and uh, and and then provocateurs will uh you know mix with that crowd and then there'll be some act of violence some will get someone gets beaten up or whatever it might be and then uh the media will say well you know, you've, you're, you're hypocrites, you proclaim nonviolence, but you engage violently. I think we need, so we need a more, a more subtle and uh, nuanced understanding of, of, of violence and, and the occasions on which that might be necessary. Yeah, contextualize it, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. From one bald, faceless man to his fellow bald, faceless man. I thank you profusely, uh, Simon, and uh, hope we can do it again. Okay. Uh, uh, Sorry, I didn't hear that. We're even dressed alike. Yeah, kind of. I do. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I just uh, want to quote Dr. Corner West um, for his, our listeners. Dr. West says he loves Simon Kersley and he reads him. Dr. Cornel West reads Simon Kirchley relentlessly and religiously, and I think everybody should do that. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much, Mehdi. Thank you very much for speaking to me.